Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Let's go to the Word. John chapter 16, I want to talk today about a new priesthood for a new kingdom. A new priesthood for a new kingdom. How, How do you respond when... Something new arises in your life. We, we all kind of respond differently, don't we? I mean, like when, when we would get something new at our house growing up, the first thing that would take place is my father would take a razor blade and with precision cut the tape perfectly open and, and open the box and take the instructions out and begin to read. Well, that just offended every sense and sensibility of my life. That is not how you do that. That's kindling for the fire. Let's pull it out and figure it out, right? And so while he was reading, I was putting it together. And usually as I got about four steps in and had about six extra parts already, uh, we had to back up and undo. And between us bickering about how it was to get done, it would kind of get done. Well, we all handle new things differently, do we not? And when was the last time something new came into your life that really changed your life? I remember Kristen and I were car shopping with one of our parents one time. I'll not name which one. You'll understand when I finish the story. And this parent had just realized about two months before that their car had a rear defrost. It was life-changing, such that when we got to the dealership and we were trading the car in and looking at new ones, all they kept saying was, is there a rear defrost? We're like, seriously? You know, you don't care about the horsepower, but does it have 20 cup holders? I mean, you know, it's just like, it was new. And it defined everything about what this new car was going to have, right? New things can make us better. But sometimes they can confuse and scare us too, can't they? That's what we're looking at today. And here's what I want you to understand from today's passage. That Jesus makes every Christ follower a priest of his kingdom to serve his mission in the world. And friends, this was radically new by the time we reached this passage of scripture. And sometimes... Though we might say it's not new to us, it still brings confusion, maybe even a little fear to us in some ways. And so I want to begin reading from verse 16, and I want us to see today three distinctives that qualify this new priesthood in Jesus' kingdom. Verse 16 of chapter 16, Jesus says, A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves 
what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Let's pause there for just a moment. And no one will take your joy from you. Remember where we are in the gospel. Jesus is preparing his disciples for his crucifixion that is very imminent within days now of uh, the, the time that they are speaking. And these are actually the last words of Jesus to his disciples that he will offer to them before he is crucified. He will not speak to teach them anymore before his crucifixion. And what we're beginning to see here now as he's tried to introduce little by little to them is a full introduction to what's coming so they can understand once it has occurred on the other side. The first distinctive I want us to see today to qualify a new priesthood in Jesus' kingdom is this new era that Jesus is teaching about. This new era he's leading them into his final instructions to his disciples before his crucifixion was to prepare them for the biggest change of all. And it would not only be new to them, it would be radically new. He explains the coming events so they'll understand, but they don't understand now. He explains them so they'll understand after that they've happened you know, sometimes it can be hard for us to understand why it was so hard for them to get it, right? But listen to this, and I think it'll help you. Who dares make sense of anything by the idea of resurrection? Oh, well, that doesn't really make sense unless, of course, you calculate in resurrection. And once you calculate in resurrection, then it all first falls perfectly into place. Now, we may do that at times because we know how the story comes out. But they couldn't conceive of what was about to happen. And so we have to be careful that we don't go, well, if you would just make sense of everything by, by uh, understanding resurrection, then it would all make sense. I mean, we today don't even explain or make sense of anything by trite explanation of resurrection, right? I mean, that, that holds a very specific, particular purpose in life. It, it just doesn't compute in our minds. This hit me a number of years ago that why is death so difficult for us to calculate into our life and then to accept when it arises? I think it's for this reason. We were never created with the intention to comprehend death. There's a reason death holds over us what it holds over us. Because in the way that we were created, death was not a reality. And when sin entered and death entered the picture, all of a sudden we were presented with something that we had no way to process. 
And in the same way, because we have become so familiar with death, right? I mean, it's just all around us. The fact is, I wake up every morning going, I'm a little closer, <laughs> you know. I, I, I exercise and I go, I think it's very close right now, right? I mean, I mean you know, that's, that's how I feel. And, and once you break over that mid to late 20s mark and you realize it's a lot closer than you think it is, things hurt now, things break and they don't fix the way they ought to. Or that the way we, I guess that's the way they ought to, it's the way we want them to. We, we have to calculate this, then, then what about resurrection? But resurrection is so incomprehensible to us, it's not just in the normal flow of our filter. Well, we'll just have resurrection and that, that'll solve everything. And, and imagine the disciples without the understanding that we have trying to process this information. You see, for the disciples, death was final because that's how life ends. But death is not the end for Jesus. And you can't just say that and expect people to accept it because they couldn't comprehend it. But he's trying to teach them so that he leads them in such a way that they will believe it and live in light of it. Now there's the challenge right there, friends. They won't understand until they experience the resurrection. Friends, Jesus teaches his disciples to think in terms of resurrection power, not worldly power, in his kingdom mission. That's new, friends. That's new in every sense of the word. Jesus says you'll grieve and you will experience deep sorrow, but that sorrow will be turned to rejoicing. And he uses this illustration of a woman in childbirth. I think we could also say like a man that's got a bad cold. Aren't, aren't those about the same? Man, I hope you hear my jest in that or I'm in big trouble. <laughs> I probably won't use that the next two services. <clears throat> he says this, that, that the pain and the process causes great trouble, but once the child is born, that trouble's almost unrememberable. It's just gone. Why? Because the joy is so overwhelming that, that, that anything would have been worth what was received. And Jesus says that the unimaginable pain and sorrow of the crucifixion gives way to inconceivable joy because of the resurrection. You see, Jesus warns the disciples for what they're about to encounter. But he prepares them for something completely new that they'll need to know to understand life in his kingdom. He explains the issues they'll face, but the disciples don't understand. He knew they couldn't, he knew they wouldn't understand until they walked through it. And so what he's doing is he is leading his disciples into this new era. He comes to us to live a perfect life among us and to show God's righteous love for us. Then, in submission to the Father, he gives up his life to the unjust powers of the world that he had taught against for over three years so that he could lay down his life to them and die for the unrighteousness of them. 
This is what Jesus is wanting us to understand. This is so all the power and all the authority of this world, yea, even of the spirit world, we will see, has every opportunity to destroy him. He submits himself to every power and every authority that they can conceive to throw at him. Why? Because he wants not just their best, he wants their all. And in a moment, they thought they had won, but 1 Corinthians tells us that their power and their wisdom was little more than folly to God. You see, you can't just say this and drive home the real impact of it when people haven't yet experienced it. But this is what Jesus is teaching us. Because God raised Jesus up to conquer the very sin, death, hell, and the grave that threw all it had at him and could not keep him. This is the root of every trouble in life. And this is why death gives way to resurrection. For Jesus is the resurrected one. And in, resurrected, in resurrection, he is exalted as Lord. And he reigns with joy and peace, hope and love that cannot be stolen. You see, he let them throw everything they had at him. So that when he conquered it and defeated it for us, there would be nothing left for us to speculate, question, or doubt about. This is the new reality, the kingdom of God. And it is what Jesus is introducing to us as the distinctive, first of all, for this new era that the disciples were heading into. Listen to this, friends. Jesus does the unimaginable in the crucifixion. And the inconceivable in the resurrection to bring the unthinkable, the joy of eternal life from the undesirable, the trouble of our heart that we might live in his new reality, the kingdom of God unendingly. We live in a new era, friends. And it's the first qualification of what Jesus is saying to his disciples today that distinguishes him from all others. This new era, the kingdom of God, has a radical new reality defined by his resurrection power that takes trouble and turns it into unending joy. This is the new era that we have been redeemed to live in now in this world. Let me return to my opening illustration. How do you respond to new things? To new things. Because that is vitally important for you to consider today this new reality that Jesus has resurrected us into and brought us into. He's telling us this, friends. We can live in but not be ruled by the world. We can. Not in our own strength but by faith in him. We can face uncertainty. We can face the unknown. We can face everything that threatens us without being ruled by the fear that it wants to inhabit us because of the one whom we 
follow. Jesus lovingly but honestly tells the disciples to strengthen them for all times. Their hearts are full of trouble. They're full of fear. They're full of anxiety because one reason, because they don't believe. You see, believing in Jesus brings his peace in the midst of all the world's trouble and uncertainty. This is the new era he has brought us into. Jesus was leaving and the disciples, they were more sorrowful over the talk of change than the prospect of power. It's interesting, if I had posed that first question a new way or a different way, you might have responded differently to you. How do you feel about new things? Oh, I love new things, right? How do you feel about change? Well, it depends on what it is. I mean, what am I going to lose, right? Are they not the same? When something new comes, change occurs, right? But so often we think of them differently, and that's what the disciples were doing here. The talk of change was consuming them more than the prospect of his power. And Jesus gives the defining characteristic of his new era. It's this, hear me, you will have sorrow. He will turn it to joy. That's the difference that the resurrection makes in our life today. We live in this new era by his resurrection power for joy that cannot be touched, cannot be taken away. He doesn't promise a trouble-free, carefree life. But he does promise that every trouble, every care that we have will be turned to joy that cannot be taken away away that's new friends let me tell you there isn't anything in the world that will give that to you and so I want to ask us do you Christ follower live as one who believes what Jesus says not that your world will be trouble free but that every trouble you can take to him and experience his life changing power that's the first qualification of this new era the kingdom of God. And then he focuses the disciples on resurrection power for a reason. Why? Well, they're going to need it. Let's go back to verse 23 and read verse 23 and 24 to see our next qualification for this new kingdom era. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. The second qualification of this new kingdom and this new priesthood is simply this, that the new era will usher in a new priesthood. There will be a new priesthood for the new era. He's talking about how people relate to God. And he's been teaching on this for the last several chapters or this last teaching that he has given specifically to the disciples. And one of the key ingredients or one of the key practices of this new era is the way that the disciples relate that prayer will be central to everything that they do and all of the work that they do. He's teaching on the central role of prayer, not only for the disciples, but for every disciple who will follow him in this new era, and that includes us. 
And he says this, you'll ask nothing of me. You'll ask of the Father in my name and it will be given to you. Friends, this is radical, radical, radical newness. It is new light to Jesus' promise of the power of prayer. What did he say? Ask whatever you wish in my name and what will happen? It will be given to you. But now he's telling them, making a distinction between who are you speaking to? You see, in that day and in that time, those people would have never conceived of speaking directly to the Father. For that's what the priests did, not what the people did. There was a distinction between who was priest and who was the people. As a matter of fact, there was an entire tribe of the Israelite people, the Levites, who were charged to commune with God for the people and with the people for God. Every task that they did was for this purpose in their life. And Jesus is completely removing that. You see, Jesus' instructions is not that the disciples will be really good at praying, Right, you're going to be the best prayer prayers there are. As a matter of fact, they likely may have understood it that way because that's what the priests convinced everybody they were. God listens to us because we pray better than you do. That's not a far-fetched idea for us, is it? Well, if I just prayed more, God would probably listen to me. If I prayed better prayers, God would probably hear what I had to say. If I prayed more effectively... God would probably answer more faithfully. I'm going to tell you, your prayers don't depend on you one whit except for offering them. And any prayer you pray that does depend on you, now you have the answer for why it's not making any difference in your life. Our prayers do not depend upon us. They depend upon the one in whose name we ask them. Because Jesus says, you will speak directly to God in prayer. That's radical, friends. It's radical. And what he is introducing to them is not only a new era, but a new priesthood for this new era. He describes a priestly role to them when he says that the disciples will pray directly to the Father. The disciples will relate to God, no longer through a priest, but now as a priest. Not making them priests, but rather a new kind of priesthood. That's important too, friends, because God who made certain people priests was not just making certain other people priests now. In other words, the first 12 who would then relate to God for all the other people. But he was making a new kind of priesthood. You see, in the kingdom of God... Christ followers communicate directly with God in Jesus' name, no longer depending on a priest to mediate for them. That's critical for us, friends. That's critical. Because this is the dividing line between Christianity and religion. Understand how new this teaching was. This separates Christians from all other religious ideology, philosophy, and practice in the world. We don't go to God through some other person. We go to God. 
And that changes the way you pray, friends. You see, the Old Testament priestly role was to mediate between God and man. And even among the priests, only one, the great high priest, entered the Holy of Holies. And even he only once a year. Only once a year. As a matter of fact, it was so revered, they would tie a rope around him so that if he died or something when he went in, they didn't have to go get him. They could just drag him out. Because it would kill them if they went into the Holy of Holies. I mean, there was a reverence and a fear in all of that place that no one even dared to think about. And so when we come to the New Testament era and we see that the greatest perpetrators of injustice and unrighteousness were not only the priests, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but even the high priests. They were the ones handing down the mandates that separated people from God and made it impossible to get to God and put on them a burden that they could not overcome to get to God. It was the priests who had become the barriers to God. The exact opposite of what they were intended to do. Ananias and, and Caiaphas, they were the two high priests. They were the power moguls. They operated more like the mafia than the priesthood. And so you can only imagine how radical this was for the disciples. God was removed from people, He was separated. And he was unaccessible personally. Why? Why? Because that's where he was worthy of being. Because he's holy. Because he's righteous. Because he is altogether other and separate from us. Today, we talk about the transcendence of God. It's not like God has gotten rid of his holiness, friends. We talk about the transcendence of God. That he is altogether other than us. He is not like us. We are created in his image. But the problem is when we make him in ours. God was removed from people, separated and unaccessible personally. The priest, the priest of the Old Testament, which is still the system in which Jesus is teaching from here. They did for the people before God what the people could not do for themselves and as a priest, they did for God before the people what was revealed for them. So what God wanted to say to the people, the people couldn't comprehend without the priest speaking. So whatever the priest said, that's what God was saying. Now take that and imagine the perversion and the twistedness of the priesthood of that day. And imagine how manipulated and condemned people really were. The priest's highest function was to lead in the sacrificial system. Every element of the sacrificial system was led by a priest from the sacrifice. And there were moments at which it was engaged by the people, but ultimately the priest led every step of the way. But that system was only a representation of what it meant to be forgiven and cleansed of sin or even to relate to God. And the people knew this. Hebrews tells us the people knew that the sacrifices weren't relieving their sins. But they also knew that the purpose of them was to represent what God wanted to do for them. You see that? And the people also understood that not only did the sacrifices not completely relieve them for their sin. But the priests were not perfect. Otherwise... They would not have had to have offered a sacrifice for themselves before they went before God. 
So there was this practical knowledge that the priests aren't perfect and the system's not perfect, but it has been given to us to teach us about God who is perfect. And yet the priests still managed to convince them of their perfection. The priestly role was to remind the people of their need for help to relate to God, but it never actually spanned the gap between God and people. And listen, friends, here's why I tell you this is a new era with a new priesthood, because Jesus changed everything. Here's how Hebrews describes it in chapter 9, verse 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Friends, I'm telling you, that's the key to the new era right there. That's the key to the new priesthood as well. That it's not about what we do for God, it's about what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect man who became a merciful and faithful high priest that he might offer his own life as the perfect sacrificial lamb. You see, Jesus isn't only the great high priest, he's the sacrificial lamb as well. He took the place of everything of the sacrificial system and said, it's all in me. The perfect lamb of God crucified once for all, securing an eternal redemption. He mediated the new eternal covenant by tearing the curtain that separated God and man. That's why this is so important for us to understand. Because of Jesus Christ, there is no holy of holies anymore he is the holy one the curtain was rent in two the power team could never touch this if you've ever seen the power team right I mean I don't care how thick the phone book is that curtain was about 16 inches thick and hung from floor to ceiling so there was nothing that could pass through but it wasn't any big deal for Jesus the music started and he ripped it in two and threw it away. It was so incredible. The light show you wouldn't believe. As a matter of fact, day turned to night, thumb, thunder rolled, and, and I mean, it was something to behold. Jesus came from God as God to be God with us and for us and make a way for God to live in us. That's what Jesus has done for us. And friends, when we come to these two verses, we must not miss that from which they are taught from. This idea, this understanding, this context of what Jesus is saying to the disciples and what he is saying to us. Prayer is the, capital T, capital H, capital E. It is the distinct practice of priests in his new priesthood. There is no more shedding of blood. Because all the blood that could be shed and would be shed has been shed in Jesus Christ. He is the great high priest. And when Jesus commands us repeatedly to ask anything in his name, it's not because we're testing him, friends. It's because he's already proven who he is. He teaches that we as Christians are priests of a new covenant to bring people to God through his atoning sacrifice as the great high priest. You see, friends, prayer stands as the Christian's principal labor in the world because we are a royal priesthood 
We're a royal priesthood of the only great high priest who was also the perfect sacrificial lamb. We are Jesus' new priests in the world. We, hear me, hear me, we abide, chapter 15, we abide in the presence of God, not one day a year for a few moments and let's hope we make it out, but we abide in the presence of God at all times, every day, not just one day, to labor for God's redemption among his people. We live as we've been loved, standing before God for people who are far from him and standing before people as God's ambassador for a God who is very close to them. And we ask in Jesus' name for whatever needs to happen to bring those two together. We abide, we live as we've been loved so we can ask. We stand before God that we might be made what we are not, but what he wants us to be. We stand before people to show them and to share with them the God who loves them, who is not separated from them, but who has come close to them. And we ask, God, bring these two together and get me out of the way. Personal relationship with God is not a position of entitlement. It is the authority and it is the commission to labor for eternal redemption of people in the world by asking in Jesus' name. On a recent flight, just before we took off, I was startled by this sudden clacking and clicking sound. Click, 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 click. And you could tell there were multiple people doing it. And it just kind of startled me. And so I began to look around and I realized I, I was surrounded by a group who had boarded the plane together. And as we prepared for takeoff, they were frantically with their thumb, had this necklace with beads on it. They were click, 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 click. And I, I turned back thinking, wow, I hope they don't know something I don't know. That's my fear of flying. And I looked to the lady next to me. She had hers draped over and she was just shaking praying feverishly. And that was when I realized what's taking place. That, that, that the clicking and the clacking of the beads is the earning of the hearing of their prayers. And that the fervency with which they pray and, and, and the intensity is also the earning of the honor of their prayers being heard, hopefully, hopefully. And, and I just sat there for a moment, stunned. Because to be quite honest, in my faith system, those are dead prayers that will never be heard because they can't be heard because the one to whom they pray and in whom they pray does not hear because he does not live. And there was a peace that came over me, not because I was flying, but now I'm more focused on the practice of prayer and going, God, I, I know there's no clickety-clack, there's no shaking, there's nothing that I have to do to earn the right to be heard by you. There's nothing I can do to earn that right. All I must do is believe when I pray. 
And so I say thank you. And I do ask you to help us to land safely. Jesus gave us prayer as divine communication for warfare, Christians, warfare. We've reduced prayer too often to just a grocery list of needs, a laundry list of problems and hurts, and a task list of things we've got to get done. And friends, let me say, it's not that these are wrong. The problem is, that's all our agendas usually include. We we don't pray for needs to be met and problems to be solved and and to-dos to get done so that people can come to know God. We, We usually pray so that our life can be a little more comfortable. Things can be a little more convenient for us. I hear those beads clicking right now. And I'm convicted about how many times I fail to pray for the very purpose that Christ gave prayer to us. To ask for these people who believe God is far off. To know how near and close he is. And to be brought into him. We don't have to wonder if God hears. The Holy Spirit is in us. He knows what we're praying better than we do. And Jesus has promised to answer. That's not just a game changer. That's a life transformer. We we live under Jesus' name. But if we continue to live by the world's power, we deny the reality of the new era that Jesus began by denying the authority and the power of his resurrection that he's given us to get into it. Christ followers do not pray because of what we believe about other people. Christ followers do not pray because of what we believe about situations. Well, that's a bad situation. We better pray. They're a bad person. They're going to require prayer. You see, both of those are true statements, but they're half-truths, and they're missing the most important half. Christ followers pray because of what we believe about Jesus, about who he is, about what he's done, and about what he is doing in the world. Prayer is our principal labor because when we pray, God works. And if we want to see God work, we will pray. That's what Jesus is telling the disciples. Listen, friends, Jesus takes people who needed a priest to commune with God and makes them priests of his kingdom to bring other people to God. That is the second qualifying distinctive of this new priesthood, this new era. And I want you briefly to see the third. Look at verse 25 with me. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. 
His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Quiz, pop quiz, you ready? How did Jesus start this in, verse, in chapter 14? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. How does he bookend it? Your heart is troubled. Believe in me, for I have overcome the world. The third distinctive is that there is a great high priest who leads us personally. He tells the disciples, once the crucifixion and the resurrection have occurred, they will hear from him plainly because they'll be able to understand this new era. You see, Jesus Christ, friends, brings a person into direct communion, a personal relationship with God when they believe in him. And the disciples are starting to get it. Their understanding is growing, but he has one final exhortation, and he says this, very soon a time is coming within a day when you will leave me alone, you will scatter each to your own, and I'll be all alone. But I'm not alone because the Father is with me. And friends, this is a truth that we must learn as well as they did. We are never alone or separated from God in Jesus Christ. Though many things in this world try to make us think that we are. Hear me. God led Jesus to the cross. Never left him alone. Until his death, when he turned his face away. God turned his face away from Jesus on the cross so he would never have to turn you away from his presence in life. That's what the cross means. Jesus is our great high priest who is always with us, leading us personally. His presence is our comfort and our confidence because he has overcome the world. Later, John tells us in 1 John 4, 4 and 1 John 5, 4, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Chapter 5, verse 4 says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Faith in Jesus makes us overcomers because he overcame. Christian, trust and rest in him because he has overcome the world. He leads you by being with you, hear me, because he loves you. And in him, you are an overcomer. Jesus leads each person who believes personally to live in his kingdom by his presence for his purposes in the world. Quick review. In the kingdom of God, he does not promise an absence of trouble. What does he promise? That every trouble, every care, every anxiety he will turn to such a joy that the trouble was almost inconceivable to remember. 
Is anything troubling you today, Christian? Anything threatening your heart's strength? The, the joy of Christ? Anything threatening you or troubling you or overwhelming you in such a way? Might I lead you to say, take heart in Jesus, to believe in him. Not just to believe in him theoretically or ideologically or even theologically, but from that, to believe in him practically at the very point at which that trouble threatens you. And go, Lord Jesus, I know that this is the threat of my heart that steals my strength and joy today. But Lord, I believe that even in this place, in this circumstance or situation, in this relationship, that you are Lord and I believe in you to take this trouble and turn it to inconceivable joy. That's faith, friends. That's faith. Faith is not separate from where you live. It is right in the thick of it. Will you believe in him where your trouble strikes you today. Every person who believes in Christ is a priest to bring people far from God to him. Jesus makes every Christ follower a priest of his kingdom to serve his mission in the world. And his mission begins in you.